Greetings, listeners. We're back once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits like the Dreamlands, or things of a weird nature, or things that are Lovecraftian leaning, weird fiction, science fiction, horror, learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins and vast staircases that lead down to abysses of knighted secrets, of complex angles that lead through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places on other worlds and in different time-space continua. From the creation of our galaxy to the death of the sun, this is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos from the perspective of humans' concept of history. We are the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. You can find us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Season 8. Greetings and welcome to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. And between episodes, let's see... 107 and 134, we will be talking about the Beetle. The Beetle, a mystery, is a 1897 horror novel by British writer Richard Marsh. To tell you about it is to spoil it. So check it out, and that'll be going on from now until sometime in December. This episode is brought to you by FoundOutOnClothing.com and BunnySlippers.com. Subscribe to PGTTCM with D.B. Spitzer and Seraphie. Wherever you subscribe to podcasts, we prefer Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Check out the new website over at PGTTCM.com and check out the merch table over at PGTTCM.Threadless.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PGTTCM. Or check us out on YouTube at People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Edited by Daniel Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, featuring The Hive, Ghost Story, Ghost Processional, Oppressive Gloom, and our theme song, The Chamber. Recording by Alan Winteroud. The Beetle, by Richard Marsh. Chapter 11, A Midnight Episode. The weather out of doors was in tune with my frame of mind. I was in a deuce of a temper, and it was a deuce of a night. A keen northeast wind, warranted to take the skin right off you, was playing catch-you-catch-can with intermittent gusts of blinding rain. Since it was not fit for a dog to walk, none of your cabs for me, nothing would serve but pedestrian exercise. So I had it. I went down Park Lane, and the wind and rain went with me, also thoughts of Dora Grayling. What a bounder I had been, and was. If there is anything in worse taste than to book a lady for a dance and then to leave her in the lurch, I should like to know what that thing is. When found, it ought to be made a note of. 
If any man of my acquaintance allowed himself to be guilty of such a felony in the first degree, I should cut him. I wish someone would try to cut me. I should like to see him at it. It was all Marjorie's fault. Everything. Past, present, and to come. I had known that girl when she was in long frocks. I had, at that period of our acquaintance, pretty recently got out of them. When she was advanced to short ones, and when, once more, she returned along. And all that time, well, I was nearly persuaded that the whole of the time I had loved her. If I had not mentioned it, it was because I had suffered my affliction, like the worm, to lie hidden in the bud, or whatever it is that the fellow says. At any rate, I was perfectly positive that if I had had the faintest notion that she would ever seriously consider such a man as Lessingham, I should have loved her long ago. Lessingham. Why, he was old enough to be her father. At least, he was a good many years older than I was, and a wretched radical. It is true that on certain points, I also am what some people would call a radical, but not a radical of the kind he is. Thank heaven, no. No doubt I have admired traits in his character until I learnt this thing of him. I am even prepared to admit that he is a man of ability in his way, which is emphatically not mine. But to think of him in connection with such a girl as Marjorie Linden? Preposterous. Why, the man's as dry as a stick, drier, and cold as an iceberg. Nothing but a politician, absolutely. He, a lover? How I could fancy such a stroke of humor setting all the benches in a roar. By both education and by nature, he was incapable of even playing such a part. As for being the thing, absurd. If you were to sink a shaft from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, you would find inside him nothing but the dry bones of parties and of politics. What my Marjorie, if everyone had his own, she is mine, and in that sense she always will be mine. What my Marjorie could see in such a dry as dust out of which even to construct the rudiments of a husband was beyond my fathoming. Such like agreeable reflections were fit company for the wind and the wet, so they bore me company all down the lane. I crossed at the corner going round the hospital towards the square. This brought me to the abiding place of Paul the Apostle. Like the idiot I was, I went out into the middle of the street and stood a while in the mud to curse him and his house. On the whole, when one considers that it is the kind of man I can be, it is, perhaps, not surprising that Marjorie disdained me. "'May your following,' I cried. It is an absolute fact that the words were shouted." both in the house and out of it, no longer regard you as a leader. May your party follow after other gods. May your political aspirations wither and your speeches be listened by the empty benches. May the speaker persistently and strenuously refuse to allow you to catch his eye, and at the next election, may your constituency reject you. Jehoram, what's that? I might well ask. Until that moment... I had appeared to be the only lunatic at large, either outside the house or in it. But on a sudden, a second lunatic came on the scene, and that with a vengeance. A window was crashed open from within, the one over the front door, and someone came plunging through it onto the top of the portico. That it was a case of intended suicide I made sure, and I began to be in hopes that I was about to witness the suicide of Paul. 
but I was not so assured of the intention when the individual in question began to scramble down the pillar of the porch in the most extraordinary fashion I ever witnessed. I was not even convinced of a suicidal purpose when he came tumbling down and lay sprawling in the mud at my feet. I fancy if I had performed that portion of the act, I should have lain quiet for a second or two to consider whereabouts I was and which end of me was uppermost. But there was no nonsense of that sort about that singularly agile stranger. If he was not made of India rubber, he ought to have been. So to speak, before he was down, he was up. It was all I could do to grab at him before he was off like a rocket. Such a figure as he presented is seldom seen, at least in the streets of London. What he had done with the rest of his apparel, I am not in a position to say. All that was left of it was a long, dark cloak which he strove to wrap round him. Save for that, and mud, he was bare as the palm of my hand. Yet it was his face that held me. In my time I have seen strange expressions on men's faces, but never before one such as I saw on his. He looked like a man might look who, after living a life of undiluted crime, at last finds himself face to face with a devil. It was not the look of a madman, far from it. It was something worse. It was the expression on the man's countenance, as much as anything else, which made me behave as I did. I said something to him, some nonsense, I know not what. He regarded me with a silence which was supernatural. I spoke to him again, not a word issued from those rigid lips. There was not a tremor of those awful eyes. Eyes which I was tolerably convinced saw something which I had never seen or ever should. Then I took my hand from off his shoulder and let him go. I know not why, I did. He had remained as motionless as a statue while I held him. Indeed, for any evidence of life he gave, he might have been a statue. But when my grasp was loosed, how he ran. He had turned the corner and was out of sight before I could say, How do? It was only then, when he had gone, and I had realized the extra, double-express flash of lightning rate at which he had taken his departure, that it occurred to me of what an extremely sensible act I had been guilty in letting him go at all. There was an individual who had been committing burglary, or something very like it, in the house of a budding cabinet minister, and who had tumbled plump into my arms, so that all I had to do was to call a policeman and get him quadded and all that I had done was something of a totally different kind. You're a nice type of an ideal citizen, I was addressing myself. A first-chop specimen of a low-down idiot, to connive at the escape of the robber who's been robbing Paul. Since you've let the villain go, the least you can do is leave a card on the apostle and inquire how he's feeling. I went to Lessingham's front door and knocked. I knocked once, I knocked twice, I knocked thrice, and the third time, I give you my word, I made the echoes ring, but still there was not a soul that answered. If this is a case of a seven or seventy-fold murder, and the gentleman in the cloak has made a fair clearance of every living creature the house contains, perhaps it's just as well I've chanced upon the scene. Still I do think that one of the corpses might get up to answer the door. If it is possible to make noise enough to waken the dead, you bet I'm on to it. And I was. I punished that knocker until I warrant the pounding I gave it was audible on the other side of Green Park. And at last, 
I woke the dead. Or rather, I roused Matthews to a consciousness that something was going on. Opening the door about six inches, through the interstice he protruded his ancient nose. Who's there? Nothing, my dear sir, nothing and no one. It must have been your vigorous imagination which induced you to suppose that there was. You let it run away with you. Then he knew me and opened the door about two feet. Oh, it's you, Mr. Atherton. I beg your pardon, sir. I thought it might have been the police. What then? Do you stand in terror of the minions of the law at last? A most discreet servant, Matthews. Just the fellow for a budding cabinet minister. He glanced over his shoulder. I had suspected the presence of a colleague at his back. Now I was assured. He put his hand up to his mouth, and I thought how exceedingly discreet he looked in his trousers and his stockinged feet, and with his hair all rumpled, and his braces dangling behind, and his nightshirt creased. Well, sir, I have received instructions not to admit the police. The deuce you have? From whom? Coughing behind his hand, leaning forward, he addressed me with an air which was flatteringly confidential. From Mr. Lessingham, sir. Possibly Mr. Lessingham is not aware that a robbery has been committed on his premises, that the burglar has just come out of his drawing-room window with a hop, skip, and a jump, bounded out of the window like a tennis ball, flashed round the corner like a rocket. Again Matthews glanced over his shoulder, as if not clear which way discretion lay, whether fore or aft. Thank you, sir. I believe that Mr. Lessingham is aware of something of the kind. He seemed to come to a sudden resolution, dropping his voice to a whisper. The fact is, sir, that I fancy Mr. Lessingham's a good deal upset. Upset? I stared at him. There was something in his manner I did not understand. What do you mean by upset? Has the scoundrel attempted violence? Who's there? The voice was Lessingham's, calling to Matthews from the staircase, though for an instant I hardly recognized it, it was so curiously petulant. Pushing past Matthews, I stepped into the hall. A young man, I suppose a footman in the same undress as Matthews, was holding a candle. It seemed the only light about the place. By its glimmer I perceived Lessingham standing halfway up the stairs. He was in full war paint, as he is not the sort of man who dresses for the house. I took it that he had been mixing pleasure with business. It's I, Lessingham, Atherton. Do you know that a fellow has jumped out of your drawing-room window? It was a second or two before he answered. When he did, his voice had lost its petulance. Has he escaped? Clean. He's a mile away by now. It seemed to me that in his tone when he spoke again, there was a note of relief. I wondered if he had. Poor fellow, more sinned against than sinning. Take my advice, Atherton, and keep out of politics. They bring you in contact with all the lunatics at large. Good night. I am much obliged to you for knocking us up. Matthews, shut the door. Tolerably cool on my honor. A man who brings news big with the fate of Rome does not expect to receive such treatment. He expects to be listened to with deference and to hear all that there is to hear and not to be sent to the right about before he has had the chance of really opening his lips. Before I knew it, almost the door was shut and I was on the doorstep.
Confound the apostle's impudence. Next time he might have his house burnt down and him in it before I took the trouble to touch his dirty knocker. What did he mean by his allusion to lunatics in politics? Did he think to fool me? There was more in the business than met the eye, and a good deal more than he wished to meet mine, hence his insolence. The creature! What Marjorie Lindham could see in such an apostulum surpassed my comprehension, especially when there was a man of my sort walking about who adored the very ground she trod upon. End of chapter 11 Recording by Alan Winteroud Boomcoach.blogspot.com Chapter 12 A Morning Visitor All through the night, waking and sleeping and in my dreams, I wondered what Marjorie could see in him. In those same dreams, I satisfied myself that she could and did see nothing in him but everything in me. Oh, the comfort. The misfortune was that when I awoke, I knew it was the other way round, so that it was a sad awakening, an awakening to thoughts of murder. So swallowing a mouthful and a peg, I went into my laboratory to plan murder, legalized murder, on the biggest scale it had ever been planned. I was on the track of a weapon which would make war not only an affair of a single campaign, but of a single half hour. It would not want an army to work it either. Once let an individual, or two or three at most, in possession of my weapon that was to be, get within a mile or so of even the largest body of disciplined troops that ever yet a nation put into the field, and poof! In about the time it takes you to say that, they would be all dead men. If weapons of precision, which may be relied upon to slay, are preservers of the peace, and the man is a fool who says they are not, then I was within reach of the finest preserver of the peace imagination ever yet conceived. What a sublime thought to think that in the hollow of your hand lies the life and death of nations, and it was almost in mine. I had in front of me some of the finest destructive agents you could wish to light upon, carbon monoxide, chlorine trioxide, mercuric oxide, conine, potassamide, potassium carboxide, cyanogen, when Edwards entered. I was wearing a mask of my own invention, a thing that covered ears and head and everything, something like a diver's helmet. I was dealing with gases, a sniff of which meant death. Only a few days before, unmasked, I had been doing some fool's trick with a couple of acids, sulfuric and cyanide of potassium, when somehow my hand slipped, and before I knew it, minute portions of them combined. By the mercy of Providence, I fell backwards instead of forward. Sequel, about an hour afterwards, Edwards found me on the floor, and it took the remainder of that day and most of the doctors in town to bring me back to life again. Edwards announced his presence by touching me on the shoulder. When I am wearing that mask, it isn't always easy to make me hear. Someone wishes to see you, sir. Then tell someone that I don't wish to see him. Well-trained servant, Edwards. He walked off with the message as decorously as you please. And then I thought there was an end, but there wasn't. I was regulating the valve of a cylinder in which I was fusing some oxides when, once more, someone touched me on the shoulder. Without turning, I took it for granted it was Edwards back again. 
I have only to give a tiny twist to this tap, my good fellow, and you will be in the land where the bogies bloom. Why will you come where you're not wanted? Then I looked round. Who the devil are you? For it was not Edwards at all, but quite a different class of character. I found myself confronting an individual who might almost have sat for one of the bogies I had just alluded to. His costume was reminiscent of the Algerians, whom one finds all over France, and who are the most persistent, insolent, and amusing of peddlers. I remember one who used to haunt the repetitions at the Alcazar at Tours, but there. This individual was like the originals, yet unlike, he was less gaudy and a good deal dingier than his Gallic prototypes are apt to be. Then he wore a burnous, the yellow, grimy-looking article of the Arab of the Sudan, not the spick-and-span Arab of the boulevard. Chief difference of all, his face was clean-shaven, and whoever saw an Algerian of Paris whose chiefest glory was not his well-trimmed mustache and beard. I expected that he would address me in the lingo which these gentlemen called French, but he didn't. You are Mr. Atherton? And you are Mr. Who? How did you come here? Where's my servant? The fellow held up his hand. As he did so, as if in accordance with a prearranged signal, Edwards came into the room looking excessively startled. I turned to him. Is this the person who wished to see me? Yes, sir. Didn't I tell you that I didn't wish to see him? Yes, sir. Then why didn't you do as I told you? I did, sir. Then how comes he here? Really, sir? Edwards put his hand up to his head as if he was half asleep. I don't quite know. What do you mean by you don't know? Why didn't you stop him? I think, sir, that I must have had a touch of sudden faintness, because I tried to put out my hand to stop him, and I couldn't. You're an idiot. Go. And he went. I turned to the stranger. Pray, sir, are you a magician? He replied to my question with another. You, Mr. Atherton, are you also a magician? He was staring at my mask with an evident lack of comprehension. I wear this because, in this place, death lurks in so many subtle forms that without it I dare not breathe. He inclined his head, though I doubt if he understood. Be so good as to tell me briefly what it is you wish with me. He slipped his hand into the folds of his burnous, and taking out a slip of paper, laid it on the shelf by which we were standing. I glanced at it, expecting to find on it a petition, or a testimonial, or a true statement of his sad case. Instead, it contained two words only, Marjorie Linden. The unlooked-for sight of that well-loved name brought the blood into my cheeks. You come from Miss Linden? He narrowed his shoulders, brought his fingertips together, inclined his head in a fashion which was peculiarly oriental, but not particularly explanatory. So I repeated my question. Do you wish me to understand that you do come from Miss Linden? Again, he slipped his hand into his burnous. Again, he produced a slip of paper. Again, he laid it on the shelf. Again, I glanced at it. Again, nothing was written on it but a name. Paul Lessingham. Well, I see, Paul Lessingham. What then? She is good. He is bad. Is it not so? 
He touched first one scrap of paper, then the other. I stared. Pray, how do you happen to know? He shall never have her, eh? What on earth do you mean? Ah, what do I mean? Precisely, what do you mean? And also, at the same time, who the devil are you? It is as a friend I come to you. Then in that case, you may go. I happen to be overstocked in that line just now. Not with the kind of friend I am. The saints for Fend. You love her. You love Miss Linden. Can you bear to think of him in her arms? I took off my mask, feeling that the occasion required it. As I did so, he brushed aside the hanging folds of the hood of his burnoose, so that I saw more of his face. I was immediately conscious that in his eyes there was, in an especial degree, what, for want of a better term, one may call the mesmeric quality, that his was one of those morbid organizations which are oftener found, thank goodness, in the East than in the West, and which are apt to exercise an uncanny influence over the weak and the foolish folk with whom they come in contact, the kind of creature for whom it is always just as well to keep a seasoned rope close handy. I was also conscious that he was taking advantage of the removal of my mask to try his strength on me, than which he could not have found a tougher job. The sensitive something which is found in the hypnotic subject happens in me to be wholly absent. I see you are a mesmerist. He started. I am nothing, a shadow. And I am a scientist. I should like, with your permission, or without it, to try an experiment or two on you. He moved further back. There came a gleam into his eyes which suggested that he possessed his hideous power to an unusual degree, that, in the estimation of his own people, he was qualified to take his standing as a regular devil doctor. We will try experiments together, you and I, on Paul Lessingham. Why on him? You do not know? I do not. Why do you lie to me? I don't lie to you. I haven't the faintest notion what is the nature of your interest in Mr. Lessingham. My interest? That is another thing. It is your interest of which we are speaking. Pardon me, it is yours. Listen, you love her, and he... But in a word from you, he shall not have her, never. It is I who say it, I. And once more, sir, who are you? I am of the children of Isis. Is that so? It occurs to me that you have made a slight mistake. This is London, not a dog hole in the desert. Do I not know? What does it matter? You shall see. There will come a time when you will want me. You will find you cannot bear to think of him in her arms, her whom you love. You will call to me, and I shall come. And of Paul Lessingham there shall be an end. While I was wondering whether he was really as mad as he sounded, or whether he was some impudent charlatan who had an axe of his own to grind, and thought that he had found in me a grindstone, he had vanished from the room. I moved after him. Hang it all! Stop! I cried. He must have made pretty good traveling, because before I had a foot in the hall, I heard the front door slam, and when I reached the street intent on calling him back, neither to the right nor to the left was there a sign of him to be seen. End of chapter 12
Recording by Alan Winteroud. Boomcoach.blogspot.com.